You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 36. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the CSP Podcast. So glad, as always, to have you back. On today's show, I'm welcoming none other than Dr. Meredith Harold of the Informed SLP. Now, for those of you not familiar, Dr. Harold, an assistant professor at Rockhurst University in Kansas, started this project slash website, the Informed SLP, as a means to, and let me quote directly from the tagline on her site, connecting clinicians and scientists with each other's work. The purpose of the informed SLP, then, is really to bridge this gap between research and practice, to talk about what the latest studies say about a given topic of interest, to empower you, the clinician, to make more informed decisions about what you do and why you do it. And let's face it, It's hard for us working SLPs to get around to sifting through the mountain of relevant research in our field on a regular basis. Not to mention it's expensive if you don't work at a university or aren't a student. And so this is where Meredith comes in. Enjoy the conversation. So, and I remember I'm like, I know I've seen your name before. And it took me a while, and I finally made the connection between you and speechpathology.com. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I just looked up here yesterday. Your courses are still up there. So you have, a, what, two courses up there? Is that right? I think so, yeah. One was on play-based treatment that I did most recently, and I actually did a couple different courses for them on that topic. And then I also had a course previously on scheduling. Ah, yes. Scheduling. That's something I, I can always get better at. Maybe I'll have to check that one out. Um, so what I'd like to do first is get a little bio on who you are. Maybe you can tell us how you got interested in speech pathology, uh, why you pursued a doctorate, all that kind of stuff. Of course, of course. Um, so my history is pretty atypical. I'm not sure that I've met anyone else in our field who's done it quite the way I did. Um, I started off really heavy into research. Um, As an undergraduate at the University of Kansas, I started working in some linguistics research labs and also some speech language hearing, so communication sciences and disorders labs. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I was just a sophomore undergrad, I was already working in multiple labs and reading journal articles and crunching data and figuring out what it was like to be a scientist with the intention of perhaps becoming a scholar in our field myself one day. So I actually applied to continue in um, our doctoral program when I was an undergrad. So I really wasn't concerned with, you know, when, how, and if I got a master's degree because my end goal was to become a scientist. So I did that. And essentially, so essentially I stayed in school from when I arrived at the University of Kansas to start as an undergrad all the way through the end of my PhD, which I completed in 2011. And throughout my career as a student, research was by and large my focus. I had minimal exposure to what it was like to be a speech language pathologist. I did the clinical work that was required for a master's degree, but I did basically the bare minimum because I was spending most of my time doing research studies. Hmm. So 
in the last couple years of my doctorate program, um, I started to kind of look forward and plan for my future and figure out, you know, what it was I wanted to be doing, where I saw myself and how I was going to make that happen. And I started to feel really uncomfortable about the fact that um, I had spent so much time as a scholar and so much of my energy that despite the fact that my goal was to create, uh, you know, therapy programs and materials for speech language pathologists that were evidence-based and that they could use in order to serve their clients better, I really had no idea what it was like to be a speech language pathologist. I really was fairly clueless about what our field, how, how our field really worked. And so, um, and also around that time, um, after being in academia for so long and it was the only job I'd ever, ever had really other than, you know, the, you know, high school waiting table jobs and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, I somewhat felt like I didn't have a very good idea of what life outside of academia was like and whether or not it was something that I, that I was all interested in. And my colleagues couldn't answer that question for me because they too were, you know, scientists and had only ever been scientists. Um, and they also had never had careers outside of academia. So those two things kind of, a me starting to question whether or not I wanted to be in academia or not. And also me starting to feel like if I was going to be in academia and was going to be designing treatment products and materials and techniques for speech language pathologists, maybe it would be smart to know what speech language pathologists do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. and so I decided to become a clinician. Um, and that of course sent my, um, advisors, um, in a tailspin. They thought that it was the most ridiculous decision I could possibly have made to have spent so many years training as a scientist and then to jump off that track. Because essentially what I was supposed to be doing, um, based on, you know, my history and my training and everything was going and getting a postdoc. So usually PhDs, um, in our field will go get a postdoc at another Institute where they can learn from a different scientist for a couple years and then they apply to work at a university, at least that's the most traditional path, um, and then start up their own lab. Yeah. So for me to essentially totally jump off of that track and go work as an SLP for a while um, was kind of considered crazy. But I couldn't get past the fact that, you know, if I was going to be working in this field, it really shouldn't be considered crazy for me to want to work as an SLP for a couple of years. And in fact, that's what a lot of people in our field have done. It's just that I was doing it backwards because most PhDs in our field, I would say the most common profile is for, for people to have worked as an SLP for, you know, one, two, three years, and then go get their PhD. So mm-hmm. I essentially in the, you know, end game would have had the same history as others, just doing it kind of the wrong way. So needless to say, um, my game plan at that point was to work as a SLP for a couple of years in order to really kind of figure out what life outside of academia was like, and to figure out what being a speech language pathologist was like, because I felt like only by understanding the big picture was I going to be able to go anywhere, regardless of where I was going, whether or not it was in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed to understand those um, components of our field and of, you know, the real world. Mm-hmm. So um, a couple of years into it, I decided to stay <laughs> because I felt like I was learning so much. And um, 
kind of unexpected to me. I really liked being an SLP. Um, I had taken a job in a school district and was working full time there. Um, I also was continuing to kind of keep involved in academia because I still had that idea in the back of my head that I was going to go back. Um, And so I was adjuncting at a couple different universities, one local here in Kansas City and then um, NSU, which is Nova in Florida. I was teaching online for them. Mm -hmm. And then I was doing independent scholarship, like my play-based treatment research scholarship um, and doing lectures for speechpathology.com. And um, I traveled to some conferences, like I went to one in Canada, presented on my research. So I was still, you know, active in um, scholarship, but I wasn't ready to stop working as an SLP yet. It took me about five years of being an SLP full time before I finally thought to myself, okay, I understand now what this is like, Um, you know, and I'm sure that other SLPs can kind of perhaps identify with that. You know, the first couple years, you feel like you understand it a little bit better, but um, I don't, I don't know. How did you feel like it took before you really felt like, okay, I can answer my colleagues' questions. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I still can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After almost 20 years, I still can't. No. Um, you know, I, I have to ask you, though, I think many of us, we all have, even for those of us who are um, I don't. Con- I, I wasn't lucky enough to figure out what I wanted to do right after high school and college. But even for those of us who come into the field, I, I've met countless of people who thought they wanted to work in peds and made the switch to adults and vice versa. <laughs> but even you know, so even when you choose the field that you know is a good fit for you, there's still going to be changes in your life that you can't possibly foresee. And I'm just wondering, do you ever see yourself if, if someone, say, offered you a, a tenure track position uh, in the future, could you see yourself doing that at some point? Oh, I actually am. Sorry. I, I, oh, yeah. I started on a big, long tangent of a story and oh, didn't finish it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I start this fall back full time as a faculty member at Rockhurst University here in Kansas City. Oh, very good. Yeah. yeah. So and basically me reentering academia and me starting the informed SLP um, occurred fairly close um, in timeline to one another. I came up with the idea of the informed SLP back in November and kind of sat on it and thought about it and launched the site in um, April of this year. And I um, put in my application for the Rockhurst tenure track faculty position back in December and then um, got word that I was accepted as a faculty member. And I think it was either March or April of this year. So so, um, Mm -hmm. those two things kind of happened somewhat hand in hand. So you'll be busy with uh, with that position as well as running the informed SLP. I know. And, you know, um, so I've been kind of tracking, you know, how many hours it takes me to uh, read the journal articles and, you know, write up the posts and everything like that, because um, this summer I'm just staying home with my kids. I have two young children. And so right now I'm doing the informed SLP by um, doing it over their nap time. They're really good sleepers. So they sleep two hours every day, which is a blessing. And then uh, in the evenings when they go to bed. So I have a pretty good idea of how much time it'll take me. Um, And The other thing, too, with doing it alongside being a faculty member, even though I'm going to be quite busy um, getting started at a new university, um, informed SLP also is going to fit really nicely along with the scholarship that I have planned to do while I'm at Rockhurst. Mm -hmm. And so they'll somewhat go hand in hand and kind of feed off of one another. So very nice. Yeah. Okay, so let's transition it. Let's tell uh, any listeners out there not familiar yet. What is the informed SLP? So basically what it is, is a um, 
newsletter that you sign up for and you choose what area um, you're interested in. Right now, we only have the pediatrics and school-based SLP newsletter launched, Mm -hmm. but I also have plans for um, an adults hospital and healthcare section and a scoping facility section and an early intervention section where you basically, you know, tell us what areas you do your work in. And then each month you get a newsletter with all of the research that's come out in the past month um, related to your area of practice. And um, I can tell you based on the last several months, I've been taking data on approximately how many journal articles are out there and how many get included in the newsletter. Um, and I, for the pediatric and pediatrics and school-based SLP section, I, refer, I review just under 50 journals. And then I usually get about 100 new articles that look like they could be relevant to pediatric SLPs based on the title alone. Mm -hmm. And then I tag those and go through and start reading abstracts and the full journals, then essentially look for only the ones that SLPs can immediately use in their practice right away, and then give a summary of those Um, Well, a brief summary um, and then send it out in the newsletter. And so the idea for SLPs is we need to be able to have a way to maintain our connection to current evidence in our field that isn't ridiculously time consuming and, um, you know, uh, too big of a barrier in in order to, you know, incorporate incorporate it into our everyday clinical practice. So the idea of the informed SLP is that it really should take SLPs maybe five, 10 minutes to read it each month, which is very doable. Um, And it essentially points you in the direction of things that you may need to read more in depth. So like I might tell you about a new study on, um, you know, a therapy procedure that can be used for children who stutter. And if you're someone who has a lot of those clients in your practice, you can then click the link to go to that article and read it in depth so that you know exactly how to um, your self-perform that therapy procedure, or um, if it's not someone that you typically have in your practice, then you skip that one and read the ones that are more relevant to you. So now is it just you doing this? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm, a lot but of reading. Yeah. It is a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> For okay. me, I really like reading journal articles and it's fun. Um, yeah. and that's kind of you know the ideal situation where you identify something that you feel like your colleagues need, and it's also something that you really enjoy doing, then it makes it, you know, really easy to kind of incorporate into your... Yeah. Now, one thing on the informed SLP, you you note that you only use, you only comment on articles that adhere to level A evidence. Um, Could you explain what that is and why you chose that? Oh, oh, um, there's actually multiple levels. So on Ash's website, um, there's some evidence-based practice links that go through, um, and I and I believe on the informed SLP, it should say that I adhere to levels 1A through 3, okay. but essentially it includes meta-analyses, well-designed randomized control studies, um, and goes all the way down through also including um, possibly uh, correlational and case studies. Um, but essentially what I do is include only the highest levels that I possibly can so that SLPs know that they can use that practice and know that it's been studied well enough that they can expect it to likely work well for their patient population that matches the study population. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will, I, I'm not going to include, exclude the possibility of ever including case studies just in case something pops up that might be important. Um, and also because when you get enough case studies across several different 
um, you know, articles a lot of times that can be worth taking a look at. So now do you, do you worry at all about, um, SLPs just looking at the informed SLPs and never going to the actual research itself and, and actually looking at the article, downloading it? Um, no. And the reason is because I try to write the summaries in a way that tells the SLPs what the take home point is without giving away all the, the essential methods that they need in order to be able to do it themselves. So I'll say things like, okay, you know, here's this great new therapy tech technique that you can use for kids who are between ages, you know, six and nine who are having difficulty with X, Y, and Z. And so go on over to this research article in order to pull it and see how you can do that. I never within the summaries actually tell the SLP exactly what to be doing for just that reason, because I don't want the newsletter to be a substitute to accessing the research. I want it to save SLPs the most tedious part of accessing research, which is finding things that are relevant to them. Yeah, Uh, that's a really good point, because come to think of it, I can't remember ever seeing in your um, monthly newsletter so far, I can't remember seeing an actual breakdown, you know, everything you need to know without having to go. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that is that, you know, I talk about saving SLPs time and, you know, based on my own experience and based on what I've seen with my colleagues, if you have an SLP who says to herself or himself, you know, I want to stay up to date on the research. I want to look into it regularly to make sure I'm doing what's best in my practice. And so they make it their goal to, you know, access um, the ASHA journals and go to PubMed every so often, looking up things that are relevant to their patient population, and then go through and start to read abstracts and go through and start to read articles. They are going to print a lot of articles, yes. <laughs> save a lot of PDFs that are completely useless to them. Um, and it's not because the scientists did bad research. Instead, there's a lot of science out there that isn't ready for immediate clinical uptake um, for many reasons. um, There's things that um, technology-based studies that, you know, there's publications about some great new tool that you can use, but it's not available to SLPs yet. And you Mm -hmm. don't figure that out until you read the study. Or there's studies that tell us about things like how language develops um, that is kind of an interesting fact for SLPs to know. Mm-hmm. But when you go and read the study in depth, you realize it's not really going to change yet how you treat your individual clients because it's just not quite ready to have that type of impact on clinical practice, even though it may be a very important study um, in the future along with other studies for changing clinical, clinical practice. So for SLPs who want to read research, um, honestly, that's by far the most time-consuming part is just figuring out whether or not the articles that are out there are any good for you, and you don't know that until you read them. And so, just to be just to be clear, you're not just drawing from ASHA journals; you're drawing from all over the place. Yes, yes. Um, I uh, include. So I look at. Um, there's a lot of different ways that um, journals and uh, journal articles can be ranked in terms of how influential or important they are, and I actually use three different ranking systems: um, the impact factor, one's called Sanago, one's called the H index. Um, but these three different things basically give you a rough idea of how important certain journals articles are to our field, and I pull from the top fifty journals um, that are, or sorry, the top 50 ratings across each of those indices, um, the journals that are present within those. 
And so I access every single one of them every single month looking for what could be relevant to SLPs. So is, is this a ranking system that someone else does? That's some other body? Yeah. Who, yeah. who does this? Um, various companies and publishers. Okay. Um, and then one of them's a actual, a, actually a Google Scholar metric. So it's just a way for um, the, the metrics are most often used by academics in order to um, gauge how big of an impact the journals have that they're publishing their work in right. just like a rating system. Yeah. So, so tell me, you know, one of the reasons I think this is a good idea that you're, you're onto something here because I, um, I find one thing that's, that's very frustrating for me is just a, a guy who works in the school system. I don't have access uh, outside of ASHA um, mm-hmm. to things like topics and language disorders. The yearly yeah. cost, if one were to, get a subscription it would just be an economic nightmare for most of us yeah and so that, that's actually a big issue um, in science right now is the open science or open access movement so just to take an example of how expensive journal articles can be if you were to um, download and pay for every single journal article that I read each month um, for the informed SLP subscribers it would cost you thousands of dollars a yeah. month yeah. yeah um, I ran the numbers one month and it was 3000 something if I were to have paid for every single journal article on my own. And so there's, and there's a big range, you know, sometimes you can get them for five bucks or, you know, um, get them for 24 to 48 hours. And then other times you have to pay 50, $60 for a single journal article in order to get access to it. But within my site, I have um, ideas for ways that you can get access to journal articles without having to pay the huge price tag. Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially universities um, often have subscriptions. And so if you're not, you know, a student or faculty member, which most of us aren't, um, you can a lot of times get a pass to go to the university and um, use their libraries and get the um, journal articles that way. Or like a lot of times hospitals will have subscriptions or you can just um, Google it. And a lot of times scholars will put their articles online, even though the publisher also has it online for a fee um, mm. that they're essentially posting out there in order to give people access to their work. But um, or you can ask the um, author for it and or ask people who work in the lab for it and they can share that PDF with you Um so that you can read it. So, and, so do authors, uh, individual professors who who are published, they have do they have uh, ownership um, of their work? Then they no, can share. They, they don't, and they don't make money off their publications too, which is I think a common misconception. So, yeah. when a scientist does a study and um, publishes it with a journal, that journal owns that publication. The scientist doesn't make any money off of the study. Um, so, you know. Like by me saying, you know, oh, you guys should access, you know, this study. It's a really great one. That scientist isn't directly profiting from the people who come from the informed SLP and then go and purchase um, his study because the journal is the one uh, making money off of it. You know, I, I've had this idea recently that it, it makes sense. It probably sounds crazy to a lot of people that I wonder if there was a way for ASHA to increase the the dues so that they can collectively purchase access to many of the related uh, journals that we'd like to see. 
Yeah. But um, people complain about Asher dues as it is. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that would die uh, very yeah. quickly. And, and they're massively expensive. I mean, there's a huge movement right now, honestly, for um, open access to journals and open science. There's a lot of people who believe that you should never have to pay for journal articles, particularly those that were um, that the science that was done was paid for by taxpayer dollars um, in the first place. So um, but that's a whole (laughs) different animal to get into is the expense of journal articles. But yeah, we can pretty much just say, yeah, they're super duper expensive. And a lot of people are happy about that. But there's a lot of change happening right now in academic publishing. And I really, I personally don't see them staying that expensive for very long, because a lot of people are refusing to pay for them and are finding ways to get around having to pay for them. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll have to check out I I live not too far from Northwestern. um, Uh And I should try that one day. Just go to the library and my yeah. before yeah, the summer's just, out. Just see what happens. Yeah, just call them and ask if they have a pass. A lot of times they have like public passes that you can um, borrow for a certain amount of time or purchase in order to go mm-hmm. get stuff. And especially if you know exactly what journal articles you want, um, because you've already either you know seen them in my newsletter or you've already done a search on PubMed yourself at home. It you know is really quick. You just go up to the um, university with a thumb drive, download the PDFs, and then take them home and read them. Very good. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what kind of uh, feedback have you gotten so far from this endeavor? Um, I've gotten really good feedback. Um, and um, I'm you know, always looking for people to give me ideas of how I can improve it. But mostly so far in the last several months, I've just gotten people who said that they were really happy with it. Um, And one thing that I'm working really hard on right now is one of the reasons that I'm doing the informed SLP um, isn't just to put SLPs in contact with research in a more efficient manner. That's the number one reason. But also, I really think that scholars need to be communicating with SLPs more as it is. And so I'm trying to get as many scholars involved in the site as possible Um, We have a Facebook group that I just launched last month where we can um, discuss the articles that are um, published in the newsletter and also discuss other articles that come up and trying to get as many um, PhD students and um, university faculty and scientists as I can involved so that um, they can be part of the discussion and answer SLPs questions and give them ideas Um, because, you know, we all know that we need to push as hard as we can in order to make sure that we have a really strong evidence base in our field. Um, but that goes both ways. It's not just SLPs who need to be accessing the research. It's need, it's scholars who need to be talking to SLPs. Yes. I, I think that's a big, a huge issue in our field is bridging mm-hmm. that, that divide between the researchers and clinical practice. Uh, and, yeah, go ahead. And, and I can give you a little bit of a kind of, clue as to why it is that way. Um, The incentive structure at universities, um, in order for a young up-and-coming faculty member to um, keep his or her job and be successful at the university, your main job with your researcher, in addition to, you know, teaching classes and whatnot, is to publish papers and get grants to do studies and publish papers and get grants to do studies. And it's kind of the culture in academia that time spent on public outreach is time that has nothing to do with that um, aspect of scholarship that is publishing papers and getting research grants. Um, And so 
a lot of um, scientists are discouraged from spending time um, doing things like blog posts or spending time on social media because it's seen as time away from um, doing science and time away from doing studies. Um, and I disagree with that. I think that that's a you know design flaw of academia that scholars aren't more encouraged to do um, outreach to the people that they're doing the studies for in the first place. But I would encourage more scholars. You know, I don't expect people who are at the height of their scientific career and super busy to be doing blogs and newsletters, you know, the way I started with the informed SLP. But at minimum, they need to be active on social media sites so that they can talk to SLPs um, about what's going on in the field. Well, do you think, um, and not to interrupt you, but do you think that different, that publisher parish mentality is, Uh uh, that differs via, or depending on which university you're at? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And um, some some universities are more research focused. They want their faculty spending as much time as re- on research as possible. And then other universities are more teaching focused, where the faculty the faculty's job is primarily teaching and clinical supervision. Sure. So yeah, it varies a lot based on where you work and what position you take within the university. Yeah. So yeah. But regardless, there's yeah. some. You know, there need to be much more open lines of communication, you know, no matter what your primary job is. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I was thinking of, I, I think you posted somewhere on your Facebook page, you, you talked about evidence-based practice and the fact that I think you pointed to a study um, about how many SLPs out there clinically uh, adhere to evident, an evidence-based pr- practice paradigm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the numbers were not encouraging. Yeah, it's low. It's really low. Um and, you know, that's, an, that's, an, that's another side of it is I also don't think that it's enough to just tell SLPs, you know, you guys need to be reading research more, accessing research more, because that's not really the crux of the problem. Um, SLPs are doing things that aren't evidence-based because they're being advertised to. So, you know, you have an SLP fresh out of grad school. And he's trying to, you know, stay up to date on things in the field. And he's getting information from the internet, from social media sites, information from colleagues, information from flyers and catalogs that come to his workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you have so little time and energy to really think carefully about all this information that's coming your way, that especially as a new clinician, you kind of get in the habit of just accepting whatever you see. And if something's out there and if a product exists, you kind of just assume that it's a good product or at least somewhat a good product. Um, When in reality, a lot of these products that are being um, published and sold and courses that are being advertised to SLPs online aren't evidence-based at all and um, are out there and are widespread simply because of really good advertising and marketing. And, you know, who doesn't do any very much advertising and marketing and that's scholars because it's not part of their job to market the work they do. And instead the work they do oftentimes kind of gets, you know, held up in the ivory tower and not enough people end up seeing it. So, so, SLPs need to be highly aware that they're often being advertised to and scholars need to step in and be more present in, in communication and present in conversations so that they can help show SLPs, you know, which products are and aren't evidence-based. Very true. I, you know, I, evidence-based practice is an area I've been struggling with, um, 
I've been I've been grappling with it, and especially the last four or five months, I've been I've been working on. Actually, by the time this episode goes live, I'll have uh, published another episode that I'm sure is going to raise some eyebrows. Um, I'm not going to give anything away, but it's really at, at the core of it is this idea of is it possible to have something out there that is labeled uh, as pseudoscience that doesn't adhere to any known um, model for evidence-based practice? There are no randomized control studies. There's no peer review. Um, there's n- little but anything but testimonials. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you see individual cases where the client has made significant pro- progress? Yeah. How do you how do you rectify that? You know. Yeah. Well, there's you know there's three corners of the evidence based triangle. There's the research yes. evidence. Yeah, and then there's the clinical expertise is a corner of the triangle, and then client and patient values yes, are yeah. a corner of the triangle, and all of them are important. And you know everybody kind of weights the corners of the triangle differently, even though we all know that all three things are important. Um, Different people value different corners, more or less. But um, I guess my stance on it would be that as long as speech language pathologists are very aware of what evidence is out there, there's nothing wrong with occasionally having to fall back on something that you see works within an individual client that doesn't have an evidence base because the science can't keep up. You know, we can't do only things that have been proven by research studies because there aren't enough research studies out there and there's not enough funding out there in order to test everything that we need tested. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, using things sometimes that aren't evidence-based. I think as long as you are aware that they're not evidence-based and as long as taking data within that individual client in order to see, you know, is it working for this client or is I or am I doing something that's you know, completely wacky right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and you have to ask that question, you know, should it work or, you know, what about this would make it work? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, and you know, it made me think about, um, Asha's practice portal. Um, I, I go back to there once in a while and just sort of check it out. And, uh, there's just, like you said, I, I don't think there's a, it's just, it's not as if there's mountains of research out there from which we can draw, um, evidence-based practice. There are a lot of principles out there. There's a lot of you know, methodologies, but it's not as if we just have reams and reams of, of possibilities. Yeah, that's true. And it's also really poorly organized. So, you know, um, there's a lack of evidence out there for many things. And also stuff that is out there is so just buried within the journals that um, it takes forever to find. <laughs> yes. And the other thing, I don't think I want to sort of pick your brain on is this idea of evidence-based practice. I've I've often thought, I've run this sort of uh, experiment, this thought experiment in my head. Let's say you have a kiddo, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill uh, phonological disorder. You take a kid, uh, he or she is in a, in a, in a clinic, say a university clinic, and let's say this university clinic is outfitted with four, say five uh, one-way mirrors, and you take some of the top researchers in the field in speech sound disorders, and they're all sitting um, behind these glasses, they can see the clinician who's administering whatever test they want. They have no idea that other clinicians are watching uh, in other two-way mirrors. They think they're the only ones. And they have to watch and they can whisper things into a microphone into this clinician so they oh, do this. So probe further this sound or check out this uh, syllable structure. And at the end of it, the, that researcher then has to come up with a treatment plan. What are the odds that four or five of those cl- uh, researcher clinicians would come up with a treatment plan that looks uh, very close, if not spot on, the same. 
yeah, some of them would come up with the same treatment plan and some of them wouldn't. And they're, yes. you know, yeah. and both scientists or all scientists are drawing from different and similar bodies of evidence. Right. And I, I think to myself, that's to me, that's kind of a difference. I think it shows me that one is that I, I think that we have ways to go in our field in terms of, uh, you know, we, we have general principles. There are larger ideas that have that have feet. But, you know, you take someone, you know, you take uh, clinical pathways in medicine, for instance, if you're a cardiologist and you came across a patient with um, so much blockage of an artery and you took, you took five uh, doctors board certified in cardiology, you can, you can be pretty sure that they would come up with a plan, a treatment plan for a patient, for said patient that would look almost identical. At least I, I would think that you would in today's uh, climate. And in speech pathology, I'm not sure that you would get nearly as much of a um, congruence of opinions. Mm, what yeah, do you think? That, that one's harder for me to think about because I don't, you know, I'm not a cardiologist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard for me to judge, you know, how, how well other, you know, clinicians and, you know, medical doctors are also watching the evidence in their field and how scholars in the field of, you know, cardiology and, heart science are, you know, how much agreement there is there. Yeah, it's complete conjecture. I'm not so sure I think that, I'm not so sure I think that the scholars in our field are any more disconnected from each other than any other field. In Mm -hmm. fact, they all hang out with each other. Yes. (laughs) So I've heard. (laughs) They all collaborate together. They go to the same conferences. They talk mostly only to each other in professional situations. And so if anything, it develops a lot of similar schools of thought where people outside of academia that come up with ideas that don't fit well with what's going on inside of academia um, are, you know, yeah, going to really be hitting some walls. Yeah. Yeah. Just a thought. Um, yeah. You've you've written about uh, language sample analysis on your both in your Facebook and in mm-hmm. one of your uh, recent uh, website posts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that it's an underutilized uh, method in our assessments. And this has been going on for years where SLPs constantly say, I have no time for this. Uh, yes. Especially you're overworked in a school system. It's really, really hard. Um, yeah. But you know, you make a very good case as to and actually, you also pointed on your Facebook posts, I believe, open source software, which I hadn't even heard about. I've used salt in the past, but uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, it's a trend that I've noticed in the literature that I've been reading over the past year that scientists are constantly just shocked that SLPs aren't regularly, regularly using language analysis. And, you know, they cite dozens and dozens and dozens of studies um, indicating reasons why we should be doing it, that it's going to help with our um, diagnostic abilities, and that it's really going to help with developing really good, solid treatment goals for kids. Yes, yet SLPs just keep not doing it. Um, And uh, so that's been a topic of discussion lately in both the Facebook group, like you said, and the newsletter um, about how SLP as SLPs, we need to perhaps be considering this. Um, If the evidence is showing that it's one of our best options out there, why aren't we doing it? Um, And yeah, there's some free software out there that's available. Um, Clan is um, one of them. And then you can also get um, to a certain extent, portions of the SALT language sample analysis software for free. And then if you want the full thing, you have to purchase it. But it's pretty um, low cost. 
Yeah, I didn't but know that the salt, that there was a free version of salt. There's not, um, it's like a trial version. A trial version. So okay. you can kind of get an introduction to it and do some of the things, um, but you can't do all the different analyses with the trial version. Is Clan easy to use? I haven't used it yet. It's been on, so um, this is terrible, but it honestly has been on my to-do list for probably a year or two now because I've been seeing this in the literature about how SLPs, you know, need to be doing this, doing this, doing this. But um, just like all my friends and colleagues, I keep on doing it by hand yeah, yeah, yeah. because I've been spending my time doing other things. But um, one of us needs to buckle down at some point. And it probably should be me, right? If I'm going to position myself as a leader saying that other people should give it a try. Sure. They need to move that to the top of my to-do list and get it done. But um, the thing that, um, you know, I also think that it's important to if scientists are going to be saying, you know, SLPs need to be doing this. SLPs need to be doing this. SLPs need to be doing this. They need to hear from us about why we're not doing it so they can help us figure out an easier way to make it happen. Um, and so the clan manual is massive. And so that's why I keep putting it off. Yeah, um, yeah. But I have a funny feeling that if somebody would, you know, figure out a way, for example, to make language sample analysis easier, like turn it into a more user-friendly app system, or mm -hmm. at least more user-friendly software, that clinicians would be more likely to use it. Um, so, Well, not to, I'm just going to harken back to, um, oh, what did I say? This? On, on the Tom Scholl podcast, I mentioned, you know, how I can't wait for the day where Siri can just transcribe everything into a, a nice language sample analysis in real time. Yeah, and you know, mark uh, all the you know morphology and syntax structures and just oh. do all the work for me. It's <laughs> funny you said that because my husband asked me about that just the other day um, because I was talking about language sample analyses with a colleague and he heard me saying how somebody needs to turn it into an app that's user-friendly, you know, goodness sakes. Um, but uh, he, he asked me that. He was like, well, couldn't you just get like a um, voice to, or a uh, speech to text, you know, program. And I was like, well, here's the thing. A lot of our kids have speech sound disorders too. And so, um, it's going to be a long time before we can, you know, regularly, um, yeah. use that with fidelity, but yeah. yeah. Now, you know, I've heard people advocate before that you, know, you don't need to, you, the golden, um, the, the benchmark I, I was always taught in grad school was always a hundred utterances. And then somehow people were saying 50 is okay. And then people were, yeah. were even saying 25, if you can't do anything, it's better than nothing. What do you, what is the magic number for you? Is there one? Um, I always aim for 50 and that's just based on what I've read in the literature about what's appropriate for a pediatric population. I feel like if I get 50, then it's reliable enough. But here's the tricky thing too, is depending on which analysis you're going to do, different studies are going to show different criteria for how many utterances you need in order to be able to perform that analysis. So yeah, but there are studies out there that, you know, recommend 100 and some out there that recommend 50, exactly like what you said. I personally always just aim for 50. And if I can get more, I do get more. But if I can't, I allow the kid to stop and we move on to something else. Hey, very good. Now, you um, you also provide throwback articles. Mm -hmm. um, so you have your articles not published necessarily this year, but maybe a few years ago, maybe a decade ago. Yeah. Um, you had one recently, a 2013 study that looked at types of interventions SLPs were using for speech sound disorders. I thought that was an interesting little one. Yes. Um, and 
again, not to rank on us SLPs out there, but the the findings that many SLPs are not familiar with many of the different types of interventions. Yeah, they're not, not at all. And, you know, um, it's not the fault of SLPs. And so I, and, and it's also not the fault of scholars. Honestly, it's just kind of a situation where scholars are rewarded for doing work that doesn't necessarily communicate directly to SLPs. And then SLPs are expected to access, um, you know, this body of evidence that, that isn't being designed directly for their benefit in the first place. So it's just a mismatch that I think, you know. Yeah. Now <laughs> I, I knew I was looking at the list of those different, uh, and I, I didn't know, I think maybe something four of those, I can't, how long was that list? Maybe 15? Oh yeah. There like was, that? Yeah, I think there was maybe, I don't have the article in front of me, so I can't remember for sure, but I th- feel like there was maybe 15 different ones. And yeah. oh, same with me. I didn't know all of them either. Like, um, I was looking like, what is Metaphone? Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so if you really want to kind of freak yourself out, open up some of these articles where the scholars saying, you know, if you are treating a pediatric speech sound disorder population, you really need to be aware of all these different things. And you know, like a quarter of them, your first reaction is, oh my gosh, I've got a lot of reading to do. But some of them... Um, We actually, I I think that if you look into it a little deeper, I bet you know um, over half of them. You just don't know what they're called in the literature. Yeah. So going forward, this thing, you plan to publish uh, monthly even after you uh, begin your academic career or say you continue? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. um, And um, I I won't, I don't think we'll be ready to expand to um, offer the other sections until at least spring 2017. Um, because it's one thing, you know, to operate one section of the informed SLP, but to bring on other scholars along with me to operate the other sections, um, I'm going to have to hold on that one for at least a few more months while I get, you know, um, things going at my university, but that's all right. We'll be eagerly anticipating. Now, where can people find uh, your website? Um, it's www.theinformedslp.com and you have all the information you need there in order to get involved. And you have a Facebook page. I'll link to that on my show page. Uh-huh. And anything else? Any other social media we should be looking out for? Um, we're primarily on Facebook and Twitter. So just those two. Awesome. Okay. Anything I left out? I don't think so. Thank you so much <laughs> for inviting me. Thank you. It was my great pleasure and uh, much success this fall. Your new job. Thank you so much. All right. I'll take, I'll take care. We'll hope to have you back at some point. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Bye now. Thank you, Dr. Harold, for an enlightening discussion. I, for one, will continue to look forward to the monthly newsletter in my inbox. Please do check out Meredith's website at theinformedslp.com and feel free to follow her on Facebook as well as Twitter. If you'd like to get a hold of yours truly, you can always do so at Jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. I also do have a Facebook page where I sometimes post as well as a Twitter account. Just check for at Jeff Steppen. Just a couple more things for today. For those of you who do not receive occasional email alerts about episodes and blog posts, despite signing up at my website, it's because I've had trouble with the service I use to collect those emails. So feel free to sign up again if you think you might have been bumped off and wish to receive those messages. Finally, if you do like this podcast, please feel free to give it an honest review in the iTunes store. I'm told it helps with visibility of the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.